0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 8, Part 2 That, then, is a timocratic youth. He resembles the corresponding city. Absolutely. And he comes into being in some such way as this. He's the son of a good father who lives in a city that isn't well-governed, who avoids honors, office, lawsuits, and all such meddling in other people's affairs, and who is even willing to be put at a disadvantage in order to avoid trouble. Then how does he come to be Timocratic? When he listens first to his mother complaining that her husband isn't one of the rulers, and that she's at a disadvantage among the other women as a result, then she sees that he's not very concerned about money, and that he doesn't fight back when he's insulted, whether in private or in public in the courts, but is indifferent to everything of that sort. She also sees him concentrating his mind on his thoughts, neither honoring nor dishonoring her overmuch. Angered by all this, she tells her son that his father is unmanly, too easygoing, and all the other things that women repeat over and over again in such cases. "'Yes,' Adamantus said, "'it's like them to have many such complaints.' You know too, I said, that the servants of men like that, the ones who are thought to be well disposed to the family, also say similar things to the son in private. When they see the father failing to prosecute someone who owes him money, or has wronged him in some other way, they urge the son to take revenge on all such people when he grows up, and to be more of a man than his father. The boy hears and sees the same kind of things when he goes out, Those in the city who do their own work are called fools, and held to be of little account, while those who meddle in other people's affairs are honored and praised. The young man hears and sees all this, but he also listens to what his father says, observes what he does from close at hand, and compares his ways of living with those of the others. So, he's pulled by both. His father nourishes the rational part of his soul, and makes it grow. The others nourish the spirited and appetitive parts. Because he isn't a bad man by nature, but keeps bad company, when he's pulled in these two ways, he settles in the middle, and surrenders the rule over himself to the middle part, the victory-loving and spirited part, and becomes a proud and honor-loving man. I certainly think that you've given a full account of how this sort of man comes to be. Then we now have the second constitution and the second man we have. Then shall we next talk, as Aeschylus says, of, quote, another man ordered like another city? Or shall we follow our plan and talk about the city first? We must follow our plan. And I suppose that the one that comes after the present constitution is oligarchy. And what kind of constitution would you call oligarchy? The constitution based on a property assessment, in which the rich rule and the poor man has no share in ruling. I understand. So mustn't we first explain how Timarchy is transformed into oligarchy? Yes. And surely the manner of this transformation is clear even to the blind. What is it like? The treasure house filled with gold which each possesses destroys the Constitution. First they find ways of spending money for themselves. Then they stretch the laws relating to this. Then they and their wives disobey the laws altogether they would do that. And as one person sees another doing this and emulates him, they make the majority of the others like themselves. They do. From there, they proceed further into money-making. And the more they value it, the less they value virtue. Or aren't virtue and wealth so opposed that if they were set on a scales, they'd always incline in opposite directions? That's right. So, When wealth and the wealthy are valued or honored in a city, virtue and good people are valued less. Clearly. And what is valued is always practiced. And what isn't valued is neglected. That's right. Then, in the end, victory-loving and honor-loving men become lovers of making money, or money-lovers and they praise and admire wealthy people and appoint them as rulers while they dishonor poor ones. Certainly. Then, don't they pass a law that is characteristic of an oligarchic constitution, one that establishes a wealth qualification, higher, where the constitution is more oligarchic, less, where it's less so, and proclaims that those whose property doesn't reach the stated amount aren't qualified to rule. And they either put this through by force of arms, or else, before it comes to that, they terrorize the people and establish their constitution that way. Isn't that so? Of course it is. Generally speaking, then, that's the way this kind of constitution is established. Yes, but what is its character, and what are the faults that we said it contained? First of all, The very thing that defines it is one. For what would happen if someone were to choose the captains of ships by their wealth, refusing to entrust the ship to a poor person, even if he was a better captain? They would make a poor voyage of it. And isn't the same true of the rule of anything else whatsoever? I suppose so. Except a city? Or does it also apply to a city? To it most of all, since it's the most difficult and most important kind of rule. That, then, is one major fault in oligarchy. Apparently. And what about this second fault? Is it any smaller than the other? What fault? That of necessity it isn't one city, but two. One of the poor and one of the rich. Living in the same place and always plotting against one another. By God, that's just as big a fault as the first. And the following is hardly a fine quality either. Namely, that oligarchs probably aren't able to fight a war, for they'd be compelled either to arm and use the majority, and so have more to fear from them than the enemy, or not to use them and show up as true oligarchs, few in number, on the battlefield. At the same time, they'd be unwilling to pay mercenaries because of their love of money. That certainly isn't a fine quality either. And what about the meddling in other people's affairs that we condemned before? Under this Constitution, won't the same people be farmers, moneymakers, and soldiers simultaneously? And do you think it's right for things to be that way? Not at all. Now, let's see whether this Constitution is the first to admit the greatest of all evils. Which one is that? Allowing someone to sell all his possessions and someone else to buy them and then allowing the one who has sold them to go on living in the city while belonging to none of its parts, for he's neither a moneymaker, a craftsman, a member of the cavalry, or a hoplite, but a poor person without means. It is the first to allow that. At any rate, this sort of thing is not forbidden in oligarchies. If it were, some of the citizens wouldn't be excessively rich, while others are totally impoverished. That's right. Now, Think about this. When the person who sells all his possessions was rich and spending his money, was he of any greater use to the city in the ways we've just mentioned than when he'd spent it all? Or did he merely seem to be one of the rulers of the city, while in truth he was neither ruler nor subject there, but only a squanderer of his property? That's right. He seemed to be part of the city, but he was nothing but a squanderer. Should we say, then that as a drone exists in a cell, and is an affliction to the hive, so this person is a drone in the house, and an affliction to the city. That's certainly right, Socrates. Hasn't the god made all the winged drones stingless, Adamantus, as well as some wingless ones, while other wingless ones have dangerous stings? And don't the stingless ones continue as beggars into old age, while those with stings become what we call evildoers? That's absolutely true. Clearly, then, in any city where you see beggars, there are thieves, pickpockets, temple robbers, and all such evildoers hidden. That is clear. What about oligarchic cities? Don't you see beggars in them? Almost everyone except the rulers is a beggar there. Then mustn't we suppose that they also include many evildoers with stings, whom the rulers carefully keep in check by force? We certainly must. And shall we say that the presence of such people is the result of lack of education, bad rearing, and a bad constitutional arrangement? We shall. This, then, or something like it, is the oligarchic city. It contains all these evils and probably others in addition. Well, that's pretty well what it's like. Then let's take it that we've disposed of the constitution called oligarchy. I mean the one that gets its rulers on the basis of a property assessment. And let's examine the man who is like it, both how he comes to be, and what sort of man he is. All right, doesn't the transformation from the Timocrat we describe to an oligarch occur mostly in this way? Which way? The Timocrat's son at first emulates his father, and follows in his footsteps. Then he suddenly sees him crashing against the city like a ship against a reef, spilling out all his possessions, even his life. He had held a generalship or some other high office, was brought to court by false witnesses, and was either put to death or exiled, or was disenfranchised and had all his property confiscated. That's quite likely. The son sees all this, suffers from it, loses his property, and, fearing for his life, Immediately drives from the throne in his own soul the honor-loving and spirited part that ruled there. Humbled by poverty, he turns greedily to making money. And, little by little, saving and working, he amasses property. Don't you think that this person would establish his appetitive and money-making part on the throne? Setting it up as a great king within himself. Adorning it with golden tiaras and collars and girding it with Persian swords? I do. He makes the rational and spirited parts sit on the ground beneath appetite, one on either side, reducing them to slaves. He won't allow the first to reason about or examine anything except how a little money can be made into great wealth. And he won't allow the second to value or admire anything but wealth and wealthy people, or to have any ambition other than the acquisition of wealth or whatever might contribute to getting it. There is no other transformation of a young man who is an honor lover into one who is a money lover that's as swift and sure as this. Then, isn't this an oligarchic man? Surely, he developed out of a man who resembled the constitution from which oligarchy came. Then let's consider whether he resembles the oligarchic constitution? All right. Doesn't he resemble it, in the first place, by attaching the greatest importance to money? Of course and, further, by being a thrifty worker who satisfies only his necessary appetites, makes no other expenditures, and enslaves his other desires as vain. That's right. A somewhat squalid fellow, who makes a profit from everything and hoards it, the sort the majority admires. Isn't this the man who resembles such a constitution? That's my opinion, anyway. At any rate, money is valued above everything by both the city and the man. I don't suppose that such a man pays any attention to education. Not in my view, for if he did, he wouldn't have chosen a blind leader for his chorus and honored him most. Good. But consider this. Won't we say that, because of his lack of education, the dronish appetites, some beggarly and others evil, exist in him, but that they're forcibly held in check by his carefulness? Certainly. Certainly. Do you know where you should look to see the evil doings of such people? Where? To the guardianship of orphans, or something like that, where they have ample opportunity to do injustice with impunity. True. And doesn't this make it clear that in those other contractual obligations, where he has a good reputation and is thought to be just, he's forcibly holding his other evil appetites in check by means of some decent part of himself? He holds them in check, not by persuading them that it's better not to act on them or taming them with arguments, but by compulsion and fear, trembling for his other possessions. That's right. And, by God, you'll find that most of them have appetites akin to those of the drone, once they have other people's money to spend. You certainly will then something like that wouldn't be entirely free from internal civil war and wouldn't be one but in some way two, though generally his better desires are in control of his worse. That's right. For this reason, he'd be more respectable than many, but the true virtue of a single-minded and harmonious soul far escapes him. I suppose so. Further, this thrifty man is a poor individual contestant for victory in a city or for any other fine and much honored thing, for he's not willing to spend money for the sake of a fine reputation, or on contests for such things. He's afraid to arouse his appetites for spending or to call on them as allies to obtain victory. So he fights like an oligarch, with only a few of his resources. Hence, he's mostly defeated, but remains rich. That's right. Then have we any further doubt that a thrifty money maker is like an oligarchic city? will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.